0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, I invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 6, Hosea chapter 6, we begin this new chapter, it has a glorious message, we will be considering verses 1 through 3 this evening, 1 through 3. Join me again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come now to your word. Uh, we come to a thankful and anticipating the great feasting upon your truth. O oh Lord, we pray that your spirit would bring that about in our hearts and in our minds, that we would be those who would be quick to remember and slow to forget, O oh Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant, and infallible word of God written for you and for me today. Come, and let us return to the Lord, for he has sworn that he will heal us. He has stricken us. But he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. That we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. And he will come to us like the rain. Like the latter and former rain to the earth. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to the reading of His word to us. Well, people of God, as Hosea foretold the coming desolation of the nation, it was clear that the alarms that would be sounded, the trumpets and the horns that would be blown, as well as the cries of the watchmen and the people would be futile. The enemy that would come would be a divine appointment, and there was nothing the people could do to adequately physically prepare or militarily prepare for that onslaught. And further, God said that he would make known what is sure. Reality was that they were sufficiently warned and given time to turn. But God declared what would be irrevocable judgment that they wouldn't evade or overcome. Ephraim would be desolate. And that desolation would come at the hand of the Assyrians. And as it is true that leaders can often rationalize or minimize their sin, God wouldn't let them off the hook. Just like he wouldn't let his people off the hook that he had put the princes over to serve. And how did God describe such princes? He said that they were like those who would remove landmarks, like those who tried to remove boundary and border markers between the kingdoms. And what did God threaten because of their many sins? That he would pour out his divine wrath upon them like water. God would open the floodgates of his fury against them, and they would receive the consequences of the torrent of his anger. Israel would be oppressed and broken in judgment, Hosea said. And yet in the midst of being wounded and in pain, where would Israel turn? They wouldn't return to their covenant God, but rather they would flee to the Assyrian king, Jerob, for help and healing. They would flee to him and and not find what they were looking for, God said. Jerob couldn't heal them. What would they find? More pain. God would weaken both Israel and Judah. He would pounce on them like a lion. He would tear them up and walk away, God said. And having been subdued by divine judgment and chastening, what would the people do? They would be brought to their senses and they would return to their God. And in our text here tonight, we see a glorious picture, really, of that being true, but also of Jesus Christ in the gospel, as we find a focus on this very thing, what return to the Lord means, as well as what happens when we do. Let's consider the people's call for them to return to their Lord in verse 1, their words regarding revival and resurrection in verse 2, and their pursuit of the knowledge of the Lord in verse 3. And here in verse 1a, we see this grand call to return. Come and let us return to the Lord. You know, at the beginning of this chapter and this verse, we find the fifth discussion in Hosea regarding returning to the Lord. And this is important as returning to the Lord is one of the central themes of the book. Let's look at those briefly. If we look back at Hosea 2, verse 7, we read there, She will chase her lovers, but will not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. And also then in Hosea 3, 4, and 5, we read, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice their sacred pillar without ephod or teraphim. And notice verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. Notice. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. And again, same chapter, chapter 5 and verse 15, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. And then what does God say? Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And in fact, these are the very words of the Lord that we see well, in the immediate context here chapter 6. And so here again, we find God's people in a time and place where they desire a return to the Lord. And what does returning mean? Well, at the heart of returning to the Lord is repentance. At the heart of returning to the Lord is repentance. The Hebrew word is the principal Old Testament word for repentance. And literally, it means to turn back, to reverse directions, and to turn away from sin and unto Christ. And so, a return to God can't be genuine if there is no change of heart and life. Hear that. A return to God can't be genuine if there is no change of heart or life. Israel and Judah couldn't rightly say that they would return and yet continue in their rebellion. True repentance requires such a life change. And so what was the motive and the reason for their desire to return? They had a view of what God had done, as well as looking forward at what he would do. Right? They were the wounded, turning to the great physician for the healing that only he could give. Look at 1b. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Beloved, God oftentimes is pleased to bring us to the end of ourselves. And then he lifts us up and draws us to himself. See the true repentance and conversion bring reconciliation that includes the healing of wounds. True repentance and conversion bring about the reconciliation that includes the healing of wounds. Remember God's words in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. We read there, now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Beloved, indeed, there was no one who could deliver Israel and Judah from God's hand. God kills and makes alive. He wounds and he heals, and did so for his people in these two kingdoms. So the consideration of the judgments of God upon us and our land, especially when they are tearing judgments, should truly awaken us to return to God by repentance and prayer and reformation. That should really be true even for us today. Considering the tearing judgments of God should be awakened to return to him and repent, to be in fervent prayer to him, and there should be a reformation. John Calvin said this, the prophet means by these words that God does not so punish men as to pour forth his wrath upon them for their destruction, but that he intends on the contrary to promote their salvation when he is severe in punishing their sins. And we must then remember, as we have before observed, that the beginning of repentance is a sense of God's mercy. That is, when men are persuaded that God is ready to give pardon, they then begin to gather courage to repent. God has not inflicted on us deadly wounds, but he has smitten that he might heal. And I think that's helpful as we consider this picture here that Hosea is painting. See how the language in Hosea 5.1 wonderfully points us not only to the Father's mercy in the chastening of his children, but it also points us to his mercy in the work of Christ for us. And what was true in his work? Jesus brought about ultimate reconciliation that gave ultimate healing. He brought about ultimate reconciliation that gave ultimate healing. Consider Isaiah fifty-three five, Speaking of Christ, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Consider that. For with Judah and Israel, what was true, the Lord had torn them, the Lord had smitten them. But the Lord would heal them. With Christ, what is true? We deserve the tearing and death. We deserve the smitten <laughs> judgment. But He poured that on the Son for us. He was wounded for our transgression that by His stripes, we would be healed. He took the punishment, that we would receive the healing. And though the people be torn and smitten, what did they trust God would do? Look at verse 2. Specifically 2a. After two days, He will revive us, they said, and on the third day, He will raise us up. So see how the after two days is a reference to how God's people understood that they would have to endure their miseries and affliction for a short time. It also points to something greater that we'll consider more in a moment. But though the people be torn, afflicted by the divine lion's pounce, and left for dead in a figurative day or two, Though by the third day, dead, decaying bodies should be buried and out of sight. See that it's precisely then, it's precisely then, after the two days, that they would be revived, they said. And further take note that they would be raised up on the third day, brought from death to new life. And there was a grand purpose in their resurrection. Notice the second half of the verse that we may live in his sight. Indeed, being raised from death to life is in view here, but even more so that they would live in the presence, in reconciled relationship, in the sight of their covenant Lord and Savior, the one that they had abandoned, the one that they had turned to other gods and walked away from. but that they would live in his sight, in his presence, in a wonderfully restored relationship with him. Beloved, God has the wonderful ability to reverse and to remedy the situation. He is the great restorer of his people. He is the great healer of his church. He is the great reviver of his saints. How clearly and magnificently this points us to Christ and his death and resurrection, doesn't it? Praise the Lord. See Hosea's time of two days and then the third day being precise. That it may be a type of Christ rising on the third day. Which he did according to the Scriptures, Even according to this scripture and others such as Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. We read there, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Indeed, God's Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, would not see corruption. He rose victoriously on that third day. He rose victoriously demonstrating the completion of the payment and the punishment and the judgment of God and him being the victor. He rose for our justification. But consider also the glorious words that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. This really happened, beloved. Christ truly rose. He rose bodily. It's according to the scriptures. The very word of God that cannot lie, because God cannot lie. And this is his word. Christ is risen. Praise the Lord. And so praise God for his wisdom and goodness and the words that he gave Hosea here. So that when he foretold the deliverance out of their troubles... He should at the same time point out our salvation by Christ, as well as our coming resurrection that is guaranteed because of Christ's resurrection. Because he rose, we will rise. First Corinthians fifteen twenty and twenty two. And therefore, considering this deliverance, what did the people say that they must do? Look at verse three. Verse three a. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Ah, that which was gone and absent. That which led to so many troubles, so many issues and sins among the people. The absence of the knowledge of the Lord when it was gone from the land. But here the people say, let us know, let us pursue that knowledge. This takes us back to the part of God's charge against his people at the beginning of chapter 4. Regarding that very thing, that there was no knowledge of God in the land. And we've seen these tragic consequences of ignorance in in the details of Israel's rebellion. And yet when the Lord brings repentance in the heart of a sinner, when they genuinely stop running away from God and truly turn back to Him, that which they once rejected and abandoned is what they seek to pursue and possess again in love and obedience to God. In love and obedience to the one that they've rebelled against and offended. They desire it because it's spirit brought. It's the work of the Spirit in their repentance, in reconciliation and, and restoration. But also see the love of God and the knowledge of God is a vital component of repentance. Especially having certainty of His mercy and grace in Christ to repentant sinners. As the call to return to the Lord is a central theme of the book, the call to know the Lord is another central theme. Never forget that when God returns in mercy to His people, God, give us a, God gives us a wholehearted passion to know him more. Consider Jeremiah 24, verse 7. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. God always blesses us with growth in knowing him more. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. By his grace, the knowledge of God will will spread through the earth, we see in Isaiah 11, verse 9. And there we read, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is the bounds of such knowledge that spreads. The expanse is vast. The knowledge of the Lord is as the water that covers the sea. In God's glorious words regarding the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, we read there No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. See the knowledge of God and the growth in that knowledge connected with repentance and forgiveness. It is a wonderful thing when the people of God return to their God. It is a wonderful thing when they humble themselves in repentance, true repentance. Seek to be faithful with them and to him. And see how he blesses them with knowledge. And so as we know the Lord and grow in knowing him more, we receive much comfort in what? In his faithfulness. Look at three B of Hosea chapter six. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Beloved, the latter and former rains to the earth were like clockwork in many regards. They were consistent. They were reliable. And it's in that type of sense that that picture is being painted regarding God. Our God is completely and perfectly reliable. Like the morning and like the rain. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. Well-known passage. Hear it afresh tonight in your hearts and minds. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Grace is your faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with His people. I'll leave you with this. Beloved, leave this place praising God for the power and the work of Christ. That he would live and that he would die and rise again on the third day for you. That you would be brought to new life and will rise to live with him forever. And as we consider your own sins against God, may this passage move you to be prompt in returning to God. May it also assure you and give you joy that God extends much mercy to you in Christ. He calls you to return and genuinely repent of your sin. That like the call to Israel and Judah, you would enjoy restored relationship with him through the work of the Holy Spirit and because of the reconciliation that Jesus has purchased for you with his own blood. But finally, knowing Christ and his work for you, seek to know him more each and every day. For the knowledge he gives us isn't to be shallow, it's not to be stagnant, but rather a deepening practical knowledge that speaks to and directs every aspect of your life, that speaks to and directs and deepens your relationship with him and your knowledge of him and his works. It is a knowledge that increases as you are diligent to study his word and his words revealed therein. Never forget, if you abide in his word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And as you grow in knowing his holiness, as you grow in knowing his goodness and his faithfulness, may that knowledge fuel your love, fuel your worship, even back tonight, and your obedience more and more. Praise God. Praise Him for His Word. Praise Him for His work and faithfulness in Christ. Let's pray together.